Well, good morning to you. It's good to be back um, with y'all this morning. And uh, the kind of the thing I want us to think about is, you know, as we start, is ask the question of, what do you rely on? Like, what do you really rely on? I, one of my kids, William, has a car and he burned out the clutch. You know, you know how that happens. So anyway, we went to the shop and these mechanics worked on it and these guys are fantastic. I mean, they are super honest and great prices and they're always helpful in kind of teaching us how to like not do it in the future. So I brought William into the shop and I said, hey, Jason, so how does this sort of thing happen? And he looked at Will and goes, so do you want to tell him or do you want me to tell him um, how this happens? And he said, do you see these burn marks? Like this means it's been really hot. And that happens when you're trying to accelerate quickly or you're trying to like burn out and stuff like that. And Will's like, huh, it's weird. (laughs) That's so strange that that happens that way. Um, But it's great because we, both William and I realize we can rely on these guys to tell us like the truth of what's going on with our cars. And when you think about your Christian walk and you think about your journey with Jesus, you have to rely on something in the midst of that journey that helps you understand who you are and who God is. And the Christian faith is built on this idea that you and I trust in who God is and what He said, that His promises are reliable. Even when everything around us in the world is telling us that those promises are not reliable. And maybe even internally, your own heart is disagreeing at its core with what God is saying. He's still reliable. Upon what do you rely? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him or submit to Him, depends on the translation, and He'll make your paths straight. You know, the whole idea of trusting in God, it's easy to trust in God when you agree with His conclusions. It's easy to trust in God whenever you're like, well, yeah, this is wonderful, and of course, let's go this way. The real question of faith is relying on God when even your heart is telling you, don't trust Him here. Don't, go, don't believe His Word in this area. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And so we're going to be talking about that today. Um, in the, throughout the Bible, there's all sorts of stories of people who rely on God and they rely on other things. And you know, every single time when they rely on what God says and His promises, it leads to a certain place to life and to resurrection. And then when they rely on something else, it always leads to something they either didn't expect or they didn't listen to God whenever He warned them about. So you had Adam and Eve in the garden. They've got this great place to live. God says, you can have it all. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating of that, you'll kind of become your own gods and you'll experience something called death. And they're like, death? Hmm, weird. How bad could it be? They eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they experience death and they're like, this is horrible. Like, why did we do this? Jesus and his disciples. Jesus are all into the Jesus thing when he's walking on water and healing people and doing this really great, cool stuff. And then in his greatest hour of need, they turn their back on him and they're nowhere to be found. Jesus accepts them back, of course, because he's gracious. Or you think about the centurion at at Jesus' cross when he's guarding the cross and he finally sees after all these things have taken place, he makes this conclusion, surely this was the Son of God. What do you rely on? Where do you go to find peace? Where do you go to find joy? Where do you go in your deepest, darkest moments to access some kind of light? What do you rely on? And the rhythm of what you rely on is super significant, not just for um, uh, what it's like to be around you in general, 
but because it's spiritually absolutely critical to you understanding how significant God's promises are. God's promises are what we calibrate our reality on. They're what we're meant to calibrate our heart on. They are meant to be the guiding light, to trust in Him with all of our heart because His ways lead to life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths or vermin destroy, or where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that's sort of the question to ask, is what do you really treasure? So let me read James chapter 4. Um, verses 6 through 10. And then I'm going to use the story of Manasseh as an example of how to think about applying this text to our lives. Okay? So James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. But He gives us more grace. That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask that as we hear Your Word and we process what we're reading here, that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would apply it to our lives and allow us to cling to You, to rely on You even more after this worship service than we do at this very moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so let me calibrate you here to kind of 2 Chronicles 33 with Manasseh. You can go read that whole story another time, but it's one of the most beautiful pictures of God giving grace to someone that everybody in the room says, that's crazy. He does not deserve that. Manasseh, King Manasseh, he's a rotten dude. At age 12, he becomes king. They're like, that sounds like a terrible idea. You know, I love 12-year-olds, but being king at 12, that is a lot to ask. Verse 2, we learn very early that Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That is super clear on communicating that whatever you think about Manasseh, he's opposite of what God is calling him to do. He's turning his back on everything. In verse 2, we read that Manasseh reinstates the detestable practices. And there's more description about that in verse 3, but it's things like raising up Asherah poles, which were meant for angel worship. You know, Satan's an angel. There's all sorts of very dark things going on for Manasseh. Um, He's creating fires. He's sacrificing his children in them. Um, He's reinstituting some of the temple worship with Baal, which is what what King Hezekiah would have um, taken down. And that was a place where men and women and children were exploited in all sorts of ways for the sake of um, of incurring the favor of this fertility god, Baal. Verses 7 to 8, Manasseh lives a a life completely contrary to the life that he had been told to live or called to live in God's Word. In verse 9, he leads Judah and Jerusalem astray. And then in verse 10, we read that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Now likely, um, the person that would have gone and spoken to Manasseh just historically would have been Isaiah. Okay? And Isaiah, if you know about the history of what it's thought to have happened to Isaiah, is that he was martyred. And it's probably Manasseh who does that. But God goes to incredible lengths to communicate to Manasseh. Rely on me. Don't rely on your own power. Don't rely on your own direction. Don't rely on your own conclusions based on the limited knowledge you have. Rely on me. Because if you don't, it's not going to go well with you. You're going to experience something you don't expect. You're going to be taken into bondage. And sure enough, 
In chapter 33, verse 11, the Lord brings against Manasseh the army commanders of the kings of Assyria. They put a hook in his nose, they drag him off into prison, and there he stays uh, in prison. And he's absolutely miserable. You know, it's interesting here, just kind of as an aside, the Assyrians, let me just watch this, okay. The Assyrians um, were not following God, and yet they're the ones who are doing the will of God. You know, they're the ones who are actually being used by God to accomplish His purposes when Manasseh, one of God's people, is doing the exact opposite. It's a wonderful reminder that our God is in the business of gathering, even those we might not expect, into being part of His plan and doing something great with them. And so that's what God does. He uses the kings of Assyria. He takes Manasseh into prison. And um, while Manasseh's there, in absolute misery, Manasseh finally comes to term with reality. I've been relying on something that has led me to this place. Why didn't I rely on the King of heaven and earth? Now, if you were God at this moment, and you had somebody like this, who you had warned and said, this, if you do this, it's going to go poorly for you. If he was guilty of killing the prophet Isaiah, if he had been a part of human sacrifice and, and, and demon worship and all these horrible things, how would you respond to a man like this if you were God? You know, if I would have been in King Manasseh's kingdom, I probably would have said, listen, Manny, I know we had this crazy party. It's been wild, but this has turned out horribly. We're in a terrible state. We are enslaved. We're in bondage in this horrible, horrible place. What are we then going to do? What happens? Well, again, what you read in, in 2 Chronicles 33 is that Manasseh finally breaks. And what he does is, we, we read in the Scriptures there, that Manasseh, when he was humbled, sought the God of his fathers, and the Lord was moved by his entreaty. The Lord was emotionally engaged by Manasseh's desire to be reconciled. That is an incredible story of God's grace. Manasseh couldn't have done anything else to communicate. He was not interested in relying on God. Not a single thing. And this is good for us to think about. Whether it's in your own life or people you know or neighbors or family members or friends or whatever, there's no one beyond the reach of God's grace. God is not in the business of writing people off. God is in the business of making dead hearts become live hearts by those hearts experiencing the power of His grace. So God speaks to Manasseh. And then God delivers Manasseh in his distress. Manasseh seeks the favor of the Lord and God is moved by his entreaty. He listens to his plea. And then we read on a little further and it says that then God restored Manasseh. It's like Manasseh finally hit rock bottom. He finally understood that by relying on anything other than the truth of who God is, it would lead to places he would never want to go. And But by relying on God's promises, it led him to the satisfaction and the hope and the encouragement that only can be found in the grace of God. Now, there's a story, it's one of my favorite books, in the Count of Monte Cristo. And in chapter 15, Dantes is in prison. And there's this monologue that we get to hear about Dantes kind of processing in his mind what's happened to him. And I think it's a good sort of experience for us. So let me just kind of read it briefly and then we'll, we'll, move, we'll move on here. Dantes passed, we read, through all the stages of torture natural to prisoners in suspense. He was sustained at first by that pride of conscious innocence, which is the sequence to hope, 
Then he began to doubt his own innocence, which justified in some measure the governor's belief in his mental alienation. And then, relaxing his sentiment of pride, he addresses supplications not to God but to man. God is always the last resource. Unfortunates who ought to begin with God do not have any hope in Him till they have exhausted all other means of deliverance. If you've never heard this before, I want you to hear it today. If you spend your entire life trying to believe that you can rely on something other than what God has said to give you what your heart desires, please don't let it be in your final years before you finally come to the same place Dantes was in prison or the same place Manasseh was when he was enslaved. Maybe don't touch fire to know it burns. Maybe we can trust in God and His promises to lead us to places where if we'll trust Him, we really do ultimately want to be. That's God's invitation to us this morning. He's inviting us into relationship to trust Him. A couple things here. One thing we learn is that God desires relationship. And we'll see that in James chapter 4. The second thing we learn is that God's in the, in, in the business of delivering difficult people from difficult situations. That the Lord will continue to pursue us. He will break through because He is powerful enough to do that. So specifically about James chapter 4. Verse 6, what do we read? And this is like the first beat if you want to begin to understand the rhythm of relying on God. This is where it starts. Are you ready? Verse 6, God gives us more grace. God gives it how much more grace? More. How much more do you think you need to finally start believing who He is? God offers that kind of grace. What kind of grace might be possible to bring peace between you and your children? God has more grace. What kind of thing, what kind of grace might we need to actually begin to live into believing that God's promises are yes and yes in Christ? Well, that grace is available. That is where it starts. And this is all over the Scriptures. In Titus chapter 2, verses uh, um, 11 and following, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, and it teaches us to say yes to an upright and godly life. What is the key to growing spiritually? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Verse 6 here in James chapter 4, God gives us more grace. That is the starting point. It's the relationship. You do not have to wonder about where you start with God. He's already cleared it up. His son Jesus has died for you. This is where you start. God has grace for you. And He has more for you. And He has righteousness for you. And He wants to see you grow and develop and begin to understand what it means to follow Him. Verse 7, Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submitting to God. That word, when we hear that word, like it's a trigger word, right? So let me just kind of move it, move it away for a second. It means to actually entrust yourself to God. To entrust yourself to Him. If you think of a child, you know, I've got three kids, and it's not so much a problem anymore, but there was a time where when, I, when the doctor gave me this purple, disgusting-looking, like, gooey substance in a bottle that I'm telling them, if you'll take this, you'll feel better, they're like, you're nuts. There's nothing about this that seems to be wise to me as a four-year-old. This smells bad, it looks ugly, and I don't like you right now. And eventually your kids trust you and they take the medicine. And what they discover is everything in me was telling me that you don't know what's best. But you made me do this and now I actually see that you were right all along. God is inviting us into trusting Him. That's why we confess our sins each week. There is actually a grace conferred 
when we unite our faith in confessing our sin before God, knowing who Christ is, that begins to strengthen our souls and our spirits. That's how God works. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I don't even know how to get my head wrapped around the reality of a dark presence like what we read of with Satan or Lucifer. It's really difficult. And as a pastor, I've had some pretty incredible encounters and terrifying encounters even in the last year with such things. But what I am telling you is here's the key. Are you ready? Resist the devil, he will flee from you. There's more grace for you. Cling to God's grace and those things will flee because there's nothing more powerful than God's grace. Verse 8, what a wonderful verse. Come near to God and He will come near to you. You do not have to wonder how God responds to you. If you will show up to church, if you will read the Scriptures, if you will learn to know what it means to follow Christ and to rely on Him, if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Always and every time without exception. What about when I don't feel it? Even when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with you. Even there. He goes on, James does, and kind of communicates ways we can think about what it means for us to tangibly come near to God. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Be aware of your double-mindedness. There is not a single person in this room sitting that doesn't have some area where as you hear me say, wash your hands, purify your hearts, you don't go, oh yeah, that thing, that word that I spoke, that action, that neglect, whatever it is. The beauty of what it means for us to follow Jesus is our failures don't define us. The resurrection of Christ does. And so we can actually confess our sins. We can actually be authentic. We can wash our hands and purify our hearts. We can be aware of our double-mindedness. You know, this idea of, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but I kind of want to do this too. It's double-minded, right? What's so powerful about understanding this for yourself is it will absolutely transform how you deal with other people. You will begin to allow space for people in your life to, you know what? Make a mistake. To wash their hands. To purify their heart with you. To be aware that they've been two-faced or hypocritical or whatever it is. There will actually be space for them to become more because you have experienced God's grace. This is why in the life of a Christian, and look, my wife's right there. I I fail at this um, maybe more often than I'd like to admit. But in the life of the Christian, we're not meant to be condescending or condemning or hold back forgiveness for a while. God doesn't do that to us. Shame at its best moment has a very temporary presence in the life of a Christian. Very temporary. Because the moment you remember your shame, you think to yourself, and that's been pinned on the cross. Jesus has been ashamed for me. Why on earth would I think that there's power in me shaming someone else? There's not. The question for us is not are we sinners, not if we're perfect. The question is where are we sinners and where are we imperfect and where ought we wash our hands and where should we purify our hearts? Where can we be aware of our double-mindedness? Where can we avail ourselves to God's grace so that we might, as we read in verse 9, repent, to grieve, to mourn, to wail, to be sober about the reality of ignoring God of which we are all guilty of. James says, hey, here's the deal. There's more grace for you. Don't forget. There's more grace for you. Because God wants you to be in a place where you actually long to cling to Him. And when you discover the hardness of your heart that is disregarding God altogether in whatever area it might be, remember this. There's more grace. 
Verse 10, when we do this, we engage, when we engage in these acts of trying to rely on God, here's how He responds. He will lift you up. That's God's take with you. God will lift you up. Think about King Manasseh. There's no way you're more rotten than King Manasseh. If so, you've gotten away with a lot of stuff and you probably belong in prison, really. He's evil. And yet, God's heart is moved when He hears Manasseh say, okay, you're God. And God restores him. If there's kind of one big idea I want you to take away this morning, it is this. That God is actually able to be relied upon. I don't care what it is you might be going through or what pits you might be crawling out of or the people in your life who are really struggling. Do you realize you have a hope for them in their struggle? You can say, listen, I don't know how to get you out of this, but I know that God's reliable. His promises are sure. And I don't have the answers. And He does have the answers. But He's not telling me what they are. So let me walk with you. Because God has grace for me. And God has grace for you. And so let's lean on His grace together because the result is is that as we do that, He will lift us up. That is why as Christians we're able to center ourselves on God's promises. Because that's what He does with us. He acknowledges the reality of who we are and the reality of who He's going to make us. A people who learn together more and more to rely on His promises so that we might be lifted up. As we come to the table here in just a moment, consider that. Where this week are you not relying on God that you can long to long, long to be able to rely on Him? And confess it. And approach Him. And expect His grace to be sufficient to lift you up in the midst of it. Alright? Let me pray for us. Father, we do give You thanks for Your grace for us. That You are one who comes to restore us and to renew us, to sustain us. Lord, that You're one who approaches even people like Manasseh. And the moment we express a desire to return towards You, You are moved by our entreaty. So as we celebrate Your Supper here in a few moments, Lord, would You encourage us by Your Spirit as we take and eat by faith because Your grace and Your promises are sufficient for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.